Well, good morning again. I get to see your beautiful smiling faces two weeks in a row. I'm stoked about that. Hope you guys are all doing really well. Um, okay. Uh, I have, well, two grandfathers, duh. I have two grandfathers, or I had two grandfathers, respect both of them, uh, both of them a ton. Um, but my two grandfathers were polar opposites of each other in so many different ways. Uh, one of them was 300 pounds, one of them was like 110, 115 pounds on a good day. Um, one of them was super outgoing, the other one was really happy just to have a pile of books and read books and that's all he did. Uh, one was an atheist until the last couple months of his life, one had a rock solid faith in the Lord. Uh, but both really love their family, sacrifice for them, and I owe a lot to each of them. Had some really great qualities, some that I, qualities that I look at, like, you are some really quirky people. Um, you're like, Aaron, you're really weird too. I'm like, thanks. Um, well, <clears throat> my one grandfather uh, lived with us, lived with my parents uh, and our family the last uh, 10 years of his life. I was in uh, seventh grade when he moved in. And and it happened, so he's living with us, and then my other grandfather came, came to visit this one time. And I'm not sure how this conversation even started between my two grandfathers, um, but there's a debate. Um, oh, I left my candy bowl back there. Um, there's a debate. I need, I need candy. Sorry. Uh, oh, thanks, Gogo. Stealing from it. Okay. Um, there was a debate that started between them about... The difference between Celsius and Fahrenheit and how to convert between Celsius and Fahrenheit. Okay, so anyone, here we go. Who knows the equation to go, uh, can go one, one from the other? Cel Sunny. Uh, convert from Fahrenheit to Celsius is 5 over 9 x minus 12, or 32, minus 32. Uh, okay, it's a plus, plus. Okay, so... It is, Fahrenheit is equal to 9 fifths Celsius uh, plus 32, or if you want to go the other way, Fahrenheit minus 32, five-ninths of that, okay? That is how you go uh, from one to the other. Well, my one grandfather, though, my one grandfather was like, well, they're at, at zero degrees Celsius is the same as 32 Fahrenheit, so then, you know, 100 Celsius has to be the same as 132 Fahrenheit, right? And it, no, okay, you're okay, yeah, you, you, you got it, right? And, and I don't know why they started this discussion for like five minutes, and my one grandfather was like, no, that's like, there's these equations. They're not, you know, linear relationships and blah, blah, blah. And the other's like, no, well, they're different at 32. They're, they always have to be different by 32. And so for about five minutes, my one grandfather was trying to explain to my other grandfather uh, all this sort of stuff. Um, and it was such a weird and strange conversation because I was like, like, I was like, why, why aren't you listening to my one grandfather who's like convinced that like, well, they differ by 32 at zero, so they always have to differ by 32. Why, like... You know, it, it didn't matter that he said, well, the boiling point of water is 100 Celsius and 212 Fahrenheit, and that's not 30, it, that didn't matter. Facts did not matter in this, in this case. Um, now, you guys are all smart here. You uh, remember some of this sort of things. Um, but let's say, hypothetically, uh, you, don't, you don't know, you're a three-year-old or whatever, and well, you don't know the, the difference in any of that sort of stuff. 
Um, who should you trust? Which, which one of my grandfathers should you trust? Well, uh, just another kind of data point for you. Uh, my, my one grandfather, who was right in this, in this, equa- in this uh, matter of life, um, had a PhD in physics. He worked for the Naval Research Laboratory, graduated top of his class from UVA. There are good things that happen at UVA, okay? Just letting you know that. I, I'm, uh, uh, he, he studied under... Um, uh, he studied under Oppenheimer at UCAL Berkeley. Um, he, if you don't know who Oppenheimer is, he's one of the leading theoretical physicists, one of the founders, uh, one of the key people in the Manhattan Project. Um, he worked with he worked with all of those uh, all of those guys. Um, I have letters between written between him and Einstein that they were they debated back and forth on some matter of theoretical physics. And later on, they proved my grandfather right, not Einstein, on this, this topic. Um, here is, uh, here's a picture of, of them. This is the, uh, all of them uh, right around shortly after World War II. Um, they had all, these are all the like, leading theoretical physicists of the time. Um, uh, in, anyway, there are Feynman's in this. Uh, my grandfather is the... Is there a, that guy right there. But there's Oppenheimer, Feynman, a whole bunch of other, all the big names if you care about theoretical physics, physicists in the 20th century are in this picture, right? Now, if you are going to debate some topic of science, okay, and you're wondering which of my two grandfathers to listen to, my other one had a lot of great qualities in, in, in life, but you're like, on this topic of science, who should I listen to? It really should be pretty self-evident who, who would be the authority uh, on this topic. Yet, my other grandfather knew all these things about this, my one grandfather and didn't listen. Um, and now I appreciated my, my one grandfather. After about five minutes, he realized this, is, this conversation is going nowhere. I'm not going to continue this conversation. Sure, whatever you say, fine. Um, I think... We could all take a lesson from that. I think we, he never got into name-calling or saying, you ignorant, arrogant fool, or blah, 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 blah. It's like, fine. Like, I'm just going to let it go. Um, now, a few key points that I want you to hear uh, from this story. First of all, as, as we're in this whole series on maturity, age does not equal maturity, okay? We talk about this uh, every week. Um, but my one grandfather, in this particular instance was immature because he would not yield to a standard of truth. There was all this overwhelming evidence in this favor of something, and he would not yield in his stubbornness. He wanted to create his own truth. He wanted to believe what he wanted to believe. And so he, he was so you know, consumed in his own way of thinking that he couldn't listen. And here's the, here's the things I want you to hear today. Maturity comes in trusting God's Word. Maturity isn't defined by age or anything like that. Um, you know, Lee talked about in the first week, you know, uh, all about what's your aim in life. And, and here, here the aim of, of what I'm trusting in is God's Word. As we were talking about... Um, you know, as we've been, again, we've been talking in this, this whole series about all the other noise that's going on in your life, what I was talking about last week, which leads to this question, so who or what am I trusting in? 
If maturity is, is about trusting in God's word and what my aim is, I then have to evaluate this question, who or what am I trusting in? So, at your tables, you got two minutes. I want you to talk about this. What makes someone or something trustworthy? And who is someone you trust? And how do you demonstrate you trust in that person? You got two minutes at your tables. Go. Okay. Help me out here. Help me out. Uh, what makes someone or something trustworthy? Eliana. Okay, their character, um, you know, they're not trying to manipulate, deceive you. They don't have some like hidden event agenda. This is for Eliana, not you. Not, you wouldn't want to trust someone who tries to steal things from you. Okay, Matthew. Okay, a history of reliability. You know, I have a long-term relationship with them. Uh, maybe, maybe like your parents, right? You've had a history with them, and hopefully that's been a good history with them. Um, and so you, you trust them. Yes, Anna. Uh, people vouch for them. Okay, other people vouch for them. So if, if someone I trust says, hey, this is the guy, this is the girl you want to trust, uh, you want to listen to, yeah, great. Uh, Miss Cole. Okay, they've got a commitment to you. You know, you know that they're looking out for your best interest. You know, it's not just about, hey, what can I get? Uh, what can I get out of them? How can I uh, manipulate uh, the situation or anything like that? Um, so, how, um, how do I demonstrate a trust? Like, when, when I trust someone, how do, like, what, is that, what does that even look like? I trust you. Yeah. Okay, doing or applying what they tell you. That's, a, that's really going to Rashawn. Okay, having faith in them. But what does that mean, though? Okay, I rely on them. You know, if, if they said they're going to be here at noon to pick me up, I trust that they're going to be here at noon. And I'm not like, you know, I don't have to like text them. Hey, are you really coming at noon? Are you sure you're coming at noon? I'm not like looking, hey, in case this person doesn't come at noon, can you give me a ride or anything, anything like that? Sonny. Tell them something you wouldn't tell other people. Okay, yeah, you know, that I, I would, uh, I, I can entrust kind of some of the hidden things in my life or some of the secret things in my life, um, uh, how I really feel or my emotions or any of those sort of things. Um, and... I guess as, as we just kind of break this down, as, as we're just talking about this topic of trust, and we're going to get into, into what this looks like with God's Word in a moment, but I just I want us to have a framework uh, before we look into God's Word. Um, you know, I trust someone because they have the power, the expertise, the wisdom, and I trust someone because they have the, that character, that they're looking out for my good, that, they, that they're not trying to manipulate the situation. They've been loyal to me in the past. They've been faithful and helpful in the past. They've kept this in confidence in the past. Um, and, and I demonstrate that trust in them by yielding to their, their authority, yielding to their recommendations, putting in practice uh, what they say. I demonstrate a trust in that. I, I'm not worried about what they're going to do. I'm not worried about whether they're going to uh, come through. Um, and I, I don't feel this, I'm not putting this burden on myself. 
I trust you by giving you uh, some of my burdens, okay? So that's what we, what we see kind of in our relationships with other people um, and the things around us. We're going to look at now what that looks like uh, in God's Word. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive into 2 Timothy 3. God in heaven, uh, we just come before you grateful and thankful for this day that you've blessed us with, uh, your goodness and faithfulness towards us, Lord. And God, I, I pray now as we look at your Word, God, that you would grow our trust in your Word. God, I pray that we would see what it means that your Word is God-breathed. What that, what that really means today, and that we would put a, a deeper hope and a confidence in you and your word, that we would trust you by yielding to you and resting in you today. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, um, like I did uh, last week, I want to quickly kind of walk us through the, t- the text, and then we're going to dive into a bunch of specifics, okay? So, here we go. In verse 10, we read this. You, however, again, remember Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So he starts off and he commends Timothy for following the the pattern of his life, all of his teaching, conduct, his aim in life. Remember again, as as Lee was talking about, as we've kind of kicked off this whole maturity series, what are we aiming at? And he's saying, hey, you followed me, that my aim in life was to tell everyone about Jesus and to build up his church. And you, you followed me in that and you persevered in that. And he says, you persevered regardless of the afflictions, uh, we have, the afflictions that we faced. Um, and if you read the, gospel, uh, see the accounts in Acts, man, Paul was beaten, stoned, run out of town in all of these, these places. Um, he faced a lot, uh, a lot of uh, opposition. And, and he's saying, hey, Timothy, you've done a good job. You've done a good job following, uh, following, following the Lord, yielding to his authority and his commands. Good job, buddy. Keep it up. Everyone, you know, the oppositions you face, everyone who follows Christ is going to face it. Don't forget, I love it. I love that line. The Lord rescued me from all. Um, he continues in verse 13. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, things are going to keep getting bad, Timothy. It's not like all of a sudden, miraculously, all problems go away in this world. No, problems are going to keep coming. Deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned. Keep going in what you've learned, bro. And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, hey, He's referencing, remember, you learned it from me. I've been trustworthy. I've been faithful. I've not trying, been trying to deceive you or anything like that. Remember my character um, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, he mentions earlier in, in Timothy, he said, hey, remember your faith which first dwelt in your grandmother and then in your mother, right? He's saying, dude, you've known this your whole life. You've, you've been raised around this um, and keep, uh, keep going in this. Um, you know, I think this verse here is, is a challenge to a lot of you guys and girls in particular because he's saying, hey, you've had this from the beginning. 
most of you here, you're raised in Christian homes. Your parents have been talking about Jesus your whole life. You've been coming to some church your whole life. You've heard a lot of messages about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And he's like, hey, remember con and continue in what you have learned. And one of the big things in this world is the world is going to keep on saying, as we talked about last week, there's going to be the noise to say, hey, go in this direction. This is what's going to make you happy. This is what's going to satisfy you. This is where life is found. And he's saying, don't go chasing every, every rabbit trail over here. Remember what you've heard in the past. Remember your foundation. Remember that anchor point uh, that, is, that is in your life. Um, he says, and from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. And everything else is pointing you in all these other directions, man. What we have in Jesus Christ is this eternal relationship with Him. That He has saved us from all the sin and junk and mess in our lives. And He says, remember that. That made you wise to salvation. Um, and then finally He says in, in verses 16 and 17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, he's saying, man, in, in the middle of, of all the opposition, of all this sort of stuff that you're going to face, uh, in the middle of people saying, go this way, that way, or the next way, what's grounding you, what's rooting me, is Scripture. And remember, that Scripture, it's it's breathed out by God. And we're going to dive into that in a, in a couple minutes. And it's, it's there to reprove or to correct, uh, to make those course corrections when you end up going here, there, and everywhere. Say, whoa, instead of going here, there, and everywhere, let's, let's bring it back. What does God's Word say? And it's there for training you in righteousness. And the end result is that you're complete, equipped for every good work. That you end up with this maturity when I am when I'm trusting in God's word, when I'm yielding to it, when I'm, when I'm obeying it, when I'm resting in it, I will be mature for every, uh, every good work. Okay? Uh, two more minutes at your table. Answer these questions. What do you think it means to trust the Bible? And why is it easy? Why do you find it easy or hard to trust the Bible? You've got two minutes at your tables. Go. Okay, help me out here. Um, practically, what do you think it means? What do you think it means to trust the Bible? Yes. Okay, just taking a leap of faith that it's true. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Look at that guy. He, he likes his days in junior high. He likes his days in junior high. Hey, can you tell me what story that's from, Nikki? Which says what? The wise man builds his house on the rock. Okay, that's just what the story's about. So good job. You know, it does say, he who hears these words of mine and acts upon them or puts them into practice should be compared to a wise man who builds his house on the rock when the waves and the wind and the flood and all that sort of stuff comes. The house stood firm. The foolish one is the one who hears the Word of God. Remember, both of them heard the Word of God, but does not apply, or does not put it into practice. He'll be compared to a foolish man who's built his house on the sand. When the wind, the waves, storm, and all that sort of stuff came, it fell, and great was its fall. Good job. Nice junior high reference. Any other uh, ideas? What do you think it means to trust the Bible? Yeah, Ethan. 
Okay, using it as a number one source. I'm looking for wisdom, or I'm trying to figure out what I should do. Is this the right decision, or that the right decision? Um, uh, or what do I what do I trust in? What do I rest in? Okay, um, why is it easier or hard to trust the Bible? Okay, looking for someone who hasn't yet answered. And thank you. Okay, there's a lot of different competing worldviews out there. Um, and it's, yeah, go ahead. Okay, your friends might have a, a different, different opinion. Okay, Ben, go ahead. Okay, that's a great point. Like, you, you know, you can't go like halfway in. Like, if I really believe the Bible, it's an all or nothing sort of deal, right? Um, good answers, good answer. I like that. Um, now, Going back to kind of, kind of our key, key point, key question here, that if maturity comes in trusting God's Word, who or what am I trusting in? So as I kind of, as I kind of break it down in, in my own heart, what is it, God, what does it look like for me uh, to, trust, uh, to trust God's Word? Uh, a couple things uh, come, come to my mind. Um, first, uh, first and foremost, um, means that I yield to the Bible's authority, okay? Um, I had to take this philosophy class at uh, Virginia Tech, um, and I had this pr- prof there, and he had read the Bible, and he was, I, he was actually really honest about his uh, religious beliefs. Um, and he said, I can't believe that that's true, because if it's true, I'm screwed. Because I know the way I want to live my life, and it's not consistent with it. I was like, well, that's bold. Like, you, 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 you get it, right? I mean, because, track with me. I mean, if there is an all-powerful being out there who created the world by speaking and who could destroy everything by snapping his fingers, and if that all-powerful being also there's, says that there's a heaven and a hell and he's going to judge, and now he does say it's based on faith in what Jesus Christ has done, not on my, my righteousness or my goodness, um, if that is true, there is a certain, not a certain, there is an absolute level of authority that he has on my life. If there is a God who created everything, and if there is a God who says there is, there is a, a real heaven and a hell coming, there is an authority that he has there. And if God is real, I can't just play, play this pick and choose, well, I like this verse, I don't like that verse. If the Bible is true, I can't just kind of go half-seas on it, like, eh, you know, Jesus loves me, let's just stay with Jesus loves me, and I can just do whatever I want, right? Um, it, it, it doesn't work that way. We all know that, we all know, uh, that that, uh, that is foolish. If God really is who He says He is, if He died on a cross for me, if He rose from the dead to give me life, he says I'm supposed to listen to his word. Man, I, I don't really have many choices in that matter. Um, this, probably, this isn't the best analogy, okay? So don't, don't read too far into this. But you know, um, with my parents, right, at times, when I was a kid, right, they would kind of say, do this or else, right? Right? There was really no other plan B here, right? When they said, 
you know, uh, there was this one time I, uh, a bunch of my friends were all going to this, this, uh, uh, this Christian retreat. And there was this plan this one weekend. And they were all going. And I was like, man, I really want to go. And my mom says, well, you know, she said it a little nicer than this, but it, it came across about this nice. She's like, well, sing for you because we have a big family retreat that weekend and it's a non-negotiable. It's like, okay. You know, <laughs> there's no, no plan B here. Um, and if there is a God, and if this is true, I have to listen. And there are, there are two main reasons of, I, of everyone I've talked to about that are non-Christians, about why they don't believe in God, or why, you know, people's, their testimonies of the, what they had to struggle with coming to, coming to the Lord. There's two main reasons. People do not believe in God. The first is, is like what I've already said, I want to do my own thing, and I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. Uh, and there's a sin I want to do, and I, I don't want any authority over me. The second big reason is there's been some huge pain in my life. Something, uh, someone, like my, my someone, family member died when I was young. Uh, this person did something really rude, mean to me. A life didn't turn out how I want, and I can't believe a God who's loving would allow this to happen. And, and again, in, you know, yeah, in all the conversations that I've had with people, it always comes down to one of those two things. And one of the big ways that we demonstrate a trust in God is we yield to His authority. And I understand that that's tough. I mean, as a, as a teen, you're naturally hardwired to want to rebel. Shoot, every human being with their sinful flesh is naturally hardwired to want to rebel. You, say, you show me a sign that says wet paint and I want to touch it, right? It says don't cross this line. I don't, you know, I think so many of the debates that you see right now going on, and, and I'm not trying to get into too much of a debate about masks or no mask vaccines or no vaccines. It's just because someone told me I have to wear a mask, I don't want to wear a mask. If someone tells me not to wear a mask, I want to wear a mask. If someone says don't get vaccinated, I want to get vaccinated. If someone says I don't want to get, don't, anyway, we just want to be antagonistic, right? There's something natural inside of us. That just, you give me a standard, I'm going to rebel against it. Um, and trusting God means God saying, God, you're right, I don't know everything, but I trust you in your word. You know, you know, I think God makes it really clear that sex is designed for one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Pornography, homosexuality, adultery, premarital sex are all outside that. And God is saying, I created it, I designed it, I think I know what's best for you in it. Not I think, I do know what's best for you in it because I created it and I made it. And I'm God. And there's a lot of good reasons behind it, but he's saying, will you yield to me being God? Will you trust that I'm God and I'm smarter than you? And I love you. Will you trust my character? Um, second major way that it, I think it means what it looks like for me to trust God is that I rest in his promises. Um, Okay, give me a few promises of God. Anyone? Help me out. Promises of God. Anyone? Help me out. That is, there we go. Drake, thank you. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a good one. Yeah. Eternal life. Awesome promise of God. Luke. Thank you. Thank you. I knew you would say that, Luke. Um, he, does, he does promise that. Go ahead, Eliana. Okay, yeah. Love 
for eternity. Okay, we have all of these promises of the Lord and resting in God's promises means regardless of what's going on in the drama in the world, I don't need to freak out. You know, this past Friday night, I was stressed out about a bunch of things, and I just was like, I'm going for a walk. I put on my earphones, put on my worship music, and I'm like, Lord, I need to, I need to, I'm like frustrated about all this stuff, and I just, I need to refocus on your word and your promises. Um, and, and there's a hundred promises I could break down like this, but we'll just go with, we'll go with eternal life. Great promise. And it's such a clear verse here. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Okay, really clear. Um, so even though my world is in chaos, and I look at the news feed, and I'm like, ah, right? There will be a day where there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away it's as I am in eternal life. There's this thing called eternal life, so I want to live pure today. I want to share the gospel with you today because there's this thing called eternal life. I can love you. I can persevere regardless of what's going on around me because there is eternal life. This is what trusting in God looks like. And as he says back in, in 2 Timothy 3, you, however, have followed my teaching. You've done this, bro. Good job. You followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Keep going. He's yielding to God's authority and he's resting in God's promises. So then the question is, why would I trust the Bible? I could talk about this for hours on end because I really like the Bible. Um, but I want to just I want to briefly outline something for you, okay? And, um, and we read here that all Scripture is, God, uh, is breathed out by God or God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Um, but that phrase here, God-breathed, breathed out by God, it's actually a, a Greek word. It's only used this one time in the Bible. Um, it's a kind of a made-up word by Paul where he is combining the word God and the word breath uh, in in, into, one, uh, into one word. Um, what, is, what does that mean? How does that impact my life? Well, if I read RBC's doctrine statement, our church has a doctrine statement about what we believe. This is what it says about the Bible. It says, God speaks. The Old and New Testament are verbally inspired by God and are completely without error in the original writings and are supreme and final authority on every subject which they deal, referencing this verse in 2 Timothy and in uh, Peter. Um, a few key things about what I think it means that it's God-breathed, okay? That they're verbally inspired by God. God is the one who is speaking them. He is the originator of them. It, we, if you read that verse in 2 Peter, it talks about how no prophecy of Scripture came about by a man's own interpretation. But God, God spoke through these people. Um, so everything we see in the Bible is God's word. He is, the one, he is the originator and the author of those words. The second thing about, uh, about, uh, about uh, this, this statement is that it's without error. And then it's finally, it's the supreme and final authority on every subject. So I, I, yield, uh, I yield to it. Um, so uh, just two words that I think help us understand 
uh, understand what, what this statement really means. And again, what really God-breathed means and how God-breathed impacts my life. First one is the word inspired or inspiration. It's the means the process by which the Holy Spirit God came upon individual people to accurately and completely record everything God wanted to tell mankind using each author's unique language and writing style. Okay? Um, breaking that down, um, you know, again, it, it's God is speaking accurately and completely. There's no errors in it. But he uses man's vocabulary of that current day. Now, who can tell me what language is the Old Testament written in? Yes, Drake. No. Go ahead. Evan. Hebrew. Okay. Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Anyone know why it was written in Hebrew? Yes. Oh, that was the language of the people. Really smart. Okay. Um, okay, nerd. Okay. Um, okay. Sue. Um, God used the language that people spoke that day because he wanted to communicate to them. If God wanted to speak to me, he would not speak to me in Swahili or German or Spanish or any other language other than English because English is the only language that I really understand. I butcher every other language I try. Yo hablo un poco español, pero u pale avec moi moi pa comprendre. And now I switch into Creole. Anyway, I try a whole bunch of different languages and I butcher them all. So if God, God spoke in those languages through those authors using their vocabulary because He wanted to communicate, communicate uh, to you. Now this process of inspiration looked different for every writer. Uh, with Moses, we read in Exodus 34 that God just spoke to him and he wrote it down. David says, the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me and His Word was on my tongue. Isaiah said God spoke to him and he just wrote it down. Ezekiel has a vision. Daniel has a vision. Micah just says, the Word of the Lord came to me. Uh, all the Gospels were written by first-hand accounts. John was a, a witness of his own eyes. Um, in the New Testament, it says the Holy Spirit taught them and helped them to remember everything the Lord said. Paul had visions. Uh, in the book of Revelation, it starts off and says, uh, John, you know, this angel came to John on the island of Papyrus and says, write down what you see. Okay? So that inspiration looks um, a little different, um, um, but, but it, uh, that looks a little different for each person, but it was God speaking. So some of the reasons why I trust the Bible, and this is really breaking down what I think it means that the Bible is God-breathed, is it was written by over 40 authors over a 1,500-year period. Uh, you look at a lot of other holy books out there, whether you're talking about the Book of Mormon, it was written by one dude over a couple-year period of time. Quran, same sort of thing. Um, and instead, you know, there's people all the time like, oh, the Bible is just written by a bunch of dudes sitting around a campfire one day. Dude, we have so much evidence that shows that it was written over this long period of time, but it has this one consistent, uh, consistent message. Another big thing about the authors and the writing of it, almost every one of the authors of the Bible were persecuted and abused for, uh, for, for writing. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Light, all of them. It was not cool to be a prophet. Uh, Jeremiah was beaten and put in the stocks. They tried to kill him. They put him in prison. They threw him in a well to die. Uh, in Amos chapter 7, you know, the king is coming to Amos. Why are you saying all this stuff? And Amos is like, dude, I don't want to be a prophet. I really want to shut up about this. This stinks being a prophet, but I have to do it because this is what God told me to do. Um, 
They weren't looking to be rich. They had no other motivation. They had no other ulterior motive. If you look at almost every one of the New Testament writers, they were all either executed for their faith um, or severely persecuted, beaten, etc. It wasn't really that, like, it wasn't like a profitable thing, right? A lot of other people who've written holy books have benefited greatly in their life for it. Everyone who was, took, took part in writing the Bible basically died for it. Um, so, uh, so that's kind of what, I, what I'm talking about in terms of inspiration. Next word I want you to see is this word inerrancy. And it just simply means when all is said and done, when we get to heaven, we will find that everything written in the Bible is completely true, whether it has to do with doctrine, ethics, history, or science. Basically, when you and I get to heaven, it may not all make sense right now, but when we get to heaven, it'll all make sense that it is uh, it is completely true. This is the whole part of the doctrine statement that says without error in the original writings and supreme final authority. Um, so, uh, you know, that means, um, you know, I mentioned sexual purity uh, a, a minute ago. Um, there was a study uh, that was recently reading by the National Institute for Child Health and Human Development. This is a U.S. government-funded study. This is not some, like, Christian, Christian right-wing study. Um, uh, it's a, it, and it found that 25.3% of teen girls who are sexually active are depressed most or all the time versus 7.7% of non-sexually active females. Guys, it was 83 versus 3.4%. 3 14.3% uh, of sexually active girls have attempted suicide versus 5.1% of non-sexually active females. It was 6% for men, uh, male teens versus 0.7%. That's just simply God's word found in science to be true. God says, hey, this really isn't the best thing for you. Science says the same thing too. And when, what this phrase, what inerrancy means is when we get to heaven, we're going to see, hey, look, every one of God's commands actually was for your good. Was to benefit you. We'll see how everything was uh, completely, uh, completely true. Um, so, uh, the next thing, I believe the Bible is scientifically accurate. There's a lot of these things. Uh, my four great-grandfather, uh, was, he was in the Navy at the time, and he read this verse, uh, which in Psalm 8, 8 says, the bird, this is, his name is Matthew Fonte Mori, um, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and all that swim in the paths of the sea. He read this verse in Psalm 8, and he'd already been studying a lot of things, and then he was already, again, in the Navy. And he's like, well, the Bible says there's paths in the sea. Maybe I should investigate more, uh, more about that. And he spent the rest of his, his life and career uh, looking at uh, ocean currents, Father of Modern Oceanography, and he found this. And now Psalm 8, 8 was written 3,000 years ago before he figured out all the ocean currents that are, uh, we go around. Uh, you look at Job 26, 7. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. In that day and age when Job was written, most people believed that the earth was on the back of a giant turtle or an atlas. Or, like, there's all these like, myths and legends out there about the earth being flat or all these other sorts of things. Um, and uh, in Isaiah 40, it talks about the earth being round, which was written at least 300 years before Aristotle proposed it. Um, in Psalm 103.12, it, it talks about how far the east is from the west. Notice he never says as far as the north is from the south. North and south meet, east and west don't meet. Um, there's lots of other verses about the universe and the water cycle. And my point is you will not find a scientific error in uh, God's Word. I, I used this illustration a, a couple, uh, I don't know, 
last year sometime um, when I was teaching a science in the Bible class, and I'm kind of passionate about this, so I'm sorry. You're going to get my nerd thing. Um, I think a lot of the problems when you're talking about, well, my friends see this and other world people, other people say this, we somehow think that the Bible is somehow opposed to science, right? That, that you, if you believe in, in anything in science, you can't believe in the Bible, that they're like these, these great enemies. Um, and I would argue that this is completely false. It is not the Bible versus science. What you are actually experiencing and seeing in your schools and in our world around us is, is really this, this fight between the Bible and secular humanism. And we, as, as a lot of Christians, as of, have unfortunately just thrown the baby out with the bathwater and just said, okay, you guys can all have science. We don't, you know, no, dude, dude. God's word is so accurate and true and it is his creation and we are to investigate that. And, and anyway, it's a, it is a worldview issue, not a scientific issue. You know, the, if I just kind of contrast these two worldviews real quick, the source of truth in Christianity is God, the Bible, what he wrote for us. So my life comes from God. He created me. My problem in this world is this, the sinfulness of my own fallen flesh and my hope is that he will return one day. I'm going to spend eternity with him because he's awesome. He, uh, that's cool. Um, whereas humanism, is, this is what it's teaching you. Um, the source of truth is what is your opinion? You are the source of truth that comes from within. It is, it is me. It is this self-worship. The God is now me, right? Um, the source of life. You are a product of random chance. Um, the problem is all the stupid, unenlightened people in this world. If they just got in their head what all the other enlightened people like us know, then this world would have no problem. And our source of hope is some sort of uh, technological advancement. Any problem in this world, there's going to be some tech for that, or teaching this, or teaching that. There's, that's the, I'll tell you, man, I've, our hope and our source, uh, our, our hope is, and this, the world's only hope is found in uh, Jesus Christ. So it's not, a, it's not a science versus the Bible thing. It is, this, is the, this is the battle and this is the fight that you are seeing uh, in front of you. Um, so why do I trust the Bible? It's scientifically accurate. I also believe the Bible is historically accurate. There's things like this, this Assyrian black obelisk. It's, it records a pay, payment. Um, uh, anyway, it's found in the 19... When was, when was it found? 1940-something? Um, uh, anyway, uh, found in uh, uh, 1946. It was made around 825 B.C. Uh, it talks about uh, this this payment uh, that's recorded in Second Kings. Um, you know, there's you know there's tons of these things. Uh, this is the Moabite stone. It records a uh, Mesha, the king of the Moabs, whose rebellion against Israel. It mentions the house of David. I mean, just every few years, there's some other person that comes up. Well, the Bible can't be right because. Uh, because it doesn't mention the Hittites. And then they do a little more digging, and then they find the Hittites. So the Bible is wrong because it doesn't mention Darius the Mede. They do a little more digging in the Persian, Persian and they find Darius the Mede. Um, not everything we have found, or not everything in the Bible so far we have found archaeological evidence for, but we have not found any archaeological evidence contra- contradicting the Bible. Um, so, I guess to a point, again, um, it's scientifically accurate, historically accurate. But then you're like, what, Aaron, 
How do I know what I have here today is what was actually written? How do I know that I can trust it? I'm just quickly reviewing some things. I know I've talked about these things before. I believe the Bible is incredibly well preserved. This is a copy of the Leningrad Codex. It was found, uh, it's, it was written in 1008 AD. It was copied by this group of people called the Masorites. They were fanatics at copying scripture. They wrote down in at the end of uh, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they wrote down that there are 643,542 letters in the Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they would go through and they would count every letter. And if they didn't have the right number of letters in it, they would, they would look to see if they could figure out what was wrong. And if they couldn't figure out what was wrong, they'd throw away the copy and try, start over again. And that's handwriting, handwriting the, the whole thing. And that's the top of the pages. They have all these little marks that say there were five dashes and two dashes on this side. Anyway, and all of this is done without computers. And people are like, but, but that was written in 1000 AD. Like, how do we know it's true? Well, in the, in the 50s, uh, we found what was called the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's 972 manuscripts found um, in these caves uh, near the Dead Sea or called Qumran. And uh, this is the whole scroll of the book of Isaiah. And they took these scrolls and compared them to the Leningrad Codex. And these were all written about 150 BC to 70 AD, um, depending on the manuscripts. And it shows the complete accuracy, uh, the just how well preserved it is. Now, those books, how we get what we, what we have today, those, uh, the Leningrad Codex, Dead Sea Scrolls, and all this sort of stuff are compiled into things like this. Um, this is a, uh, a Hebrew, uh, Hebrew Bible, uh, includes what we would call the Old Testament. And in the bottom of the page, uh, they will have any notes about from all the thousands and thousands of texts that they, they found, they have all the notes about any variance between one text says this or the next text says that. And of all of the, all of the thousands of manuscripts they found, none of them have any significant variance in them. The variants are like, well, there was a the in this word. In this copy, they had an extra a. Uh, there's nothing of any, any significance. Same thing happens with the Greek uh, the Greek text is a, a copy of the, it's called Nesselon 27, 27th edition. Again, they take the thousands of Greek texts that they have of Greek manuscripts. Because remember, Paul or whoever would write the, write the New Testament as a letter to a church, but then that church would copy it and hand it off to other churches to read. And then thousands and thousands of copies were made. Uh, and now we've gone back and tried to collect well, the copies that we've made and try to put them back together. And you look at the sheer volume uh, that I want you to see of this here. Okay, These are copies of the Greek New Testament. Okay. Uh, or some uh, an analysis against a bunch of other ancient Greek writings, whether it's Homer, Aristotle, when they were written, how many manuscripts we have. And now this number below here, this is just of, of the Greek, uh, Greek New Testament, or, or Greek copies. Um, and you see that there's a, this very short window between when they were written um, and the oldest copy we have uh, in comparison to every other manuscript, and no one argues like, oh, I don't think Homer's Iliad was by Homer, or Caesar said that, or Aristotle said that. We don't argue over every, any of those things, yet we want to argue uh, over the wor God's Word. And there's you know, basically 30,000 uh, plus manuscripts that they take and they compile and put into this. Um, and my point is, anytime someone says something like, oh, the Bible is written by a bunch of dudes around a campfire, that's silly. Why would you trust it? I, you can't trust what you have. How do we know that we have is, uh, is, is right or accurate? There is so much evidence 
uh, evidence for it. It's well preserved. Final thing I'll just say to you is Jesus said to you in Luke 24, he says this. He said to him, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and, uh, and the Psalms. Um, and it's important that he says the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. If you look at the Old Testament and what a, what a, a, a Jew a Jew would not say, hey, this is the Old Testament. They wouldn't call this the Hebrew Bible. They would call it uh, the Netzavim, the Ketzavim, uh, and the Torah. Uh, the Torah is the law, the Genesis through Deuteronomy, and the Netzavim as the prophets, of Ketzavim is the Psalms or the writings. So Jesus is saying, um, it would be like us saying, well, I, you don't believe everything written in the Old and the New Testament, right? Jesus, Jesus is just clearly identifying this is what... Uh, you should, yeah, basically he's affirming, uh, affirming it. Back to my uh, just kind of an initial story for you. If you didn't know the difference between Celsius and Fahrenheit, who would you trust? I think it's pretty obvious who you would trust. And you'd go to the expert. You'd go to the person who doesn't have any ulterior motive here. I think in the same way, there's a ton of evidence for why you and I should be trusting the Bible. And most powerfully and clearly is that the God of the universe loved you and me enough that he sent his one and only son into this world to live a perfect life and die on a cross for your sins and for my sins and to rise from the dead three days later and to give life to anyone who would be willing to believe in him. That's why I trust him. If he was willing to do that for me, then I should trust him. I would look absolutely foolish. I would look absolutely foolish if I just said, hey, Fahrenheit and Celsius, are di they differ by 32. It doesn't matter what you say. This is how they differ. But this is what I do all the time when I say, God, I'm smarter than you. I know what your word says. I know what you commanded me to do. I know I'm supposed to love this person, forgive this person, care about that, do this, whatever. Be at peace. But God, I say no. Look like a fool. And that's what I do to the Lord all the time. The God of the universe who loved me and died for me. So I trust him today. and trust him every day by yielding to his authority and resting in his promises. Let me pray for us. God in heaven, I, I just come before you grateful uh, for this day that you've blessed us with. And I thank you for the promises in your word that we can rest on. And so God, today I pray that we would do that, that we would trust and rest in your promises, that we would move in this path of maturity by obeying and yielding to your word and trusting in your word. God, you are an incredibly good and gracious and kind God, and we are so grateful for you. God, help us today to, to, to not just yield to, to all the noise and the mess around us, but that we would yield to your word and that we would see it as true, that we would rest in it, that we would trust in it because you died for us. You're God and you're good and we love you and we're grateful for you. In your son's name we pray, amen.